Hi, I'm Vessi Ivanova. And I'm Steve Hurst with Found Brand Agency. You're listening to Wavepoint Found, a podcast where we explore how companies use their identity and brand through change and disruption. With multiple vaccines shipping, it looks like our pandemic year might be nearly at an end. The release valve is about to blow, but what does that really mean? And how will we react? What will we need when it's all over? How have we changed as consumers? And what does it mean for brands and products? In this episode, recorded at the end of 2020 with futurist Christian Cruz, we talk about what the next five to 10 years may look like. The changing consumer expectations and mind spaces that companies need to consider if they hope to connect with consumers post-pandemic. So last time we talked was before the election, and now it's after the election, and we have clarity all around. It looks like we're going to get a vaccine. It's getting approved here and there. We did have some turmoil and are continuing to have some turmoil around the election, but it still looks like we have an answer, which was very much in line with what you said (laughs) when we talked earlier in the year. What are your thoughts for uh, 21? Yeah, so I think um, 2021 has an equal amount of uncertainty, which is not a lot. I I think from starting in January, when we learned about the coronavirus, it was just math in terms of how it was going to play out. And certainly by understanding Trump's psychology, we probably knew how that was going to turn out. While there is still some turbulence in that regard, it is generally accepted that a peaceful transition of power will happen, uh, even if it's petulant. (laughs) And we will have a Democratic administration starting in January that seems fairly progressive, but is going to be somewhat held on a leash by probably a Republican Senate, although who knows, Georgia could flip that. But I think the, the rule is going to be around consensus and centrism politically. 2021 is equally baked in in terms of pretty low uncertainty. I think the first half of the year, the vaccines have already started to be administered in the UK. Uh, they should be starting to be administered in the United States probably early next week. But mainly January and February, going to roll out to essential workers and at risk. And then students and teachers and prison populations, the homeless, and then broader general populations. And you've talked before, um, Christian, about what that means for consumers in this post-pandemic, post-vaccine reality, you know, a bit of uh, hedonism, you know, free spending, relief that everything's getting back to normal. In spring, things are going to start to open up because the most at risk and the essential workers have been vaccinated. So you don't have as much risk of hospitals overflowing and you don't have as much risk of death because those that are most at risk have been protected. While the general population hasn't been vaccinated yet, you're you're safer in opening things up and knowing that cases are going to not be as deadly. So even though the general populations don't start to get vaccinated until later in April, May, even June time period, you're going to start to see economies open up again. Once the general population starts getting vaccinated in June, you're really looking at the last six months of the year as being remarkably different from the first half, right? So the first half is this ramp up and waiting game. The second half is, to quote Southwest Airlines, you're free to move about the country and everybody will. I've not seen formal polls, but I've done informal polls with all of my clients and pretty much everybody I meet. And I ask them the same question. It's July 2021. You've been vaccinated. Your family's been vaccinated. The world's been vaccinated. Everything's opened back up. What are you going to do? Every single person says they're going on vacation. (laughs) 
So that's pretty interesting. Who's actually going to be serving all these people <laughs> who are going on vacation, right? If if everybody's on vacation, it's going to be very interesting. It's like really going to be island time, right? <laughs> so what that means is everybody in those industries, those hospitality and entertainment industries who've been cutting people like mad are all going to suddenly have to rehire everybody and pay them premium wages to get them. So you may start to see some wage inflation at the low end, which is is needed to get all these people in instead of out partying with the rest of the world. So yeah, the second half looks like a lot of vacations, a lot of traveling. And if you think about it, by that time, it would be, have been over a year that the world has been in lockdown and unable to travel. So they're going to be doing whatever they can to probably cross things off their bucket list. So it's beyond just, I'm gonna go travel to the beach it's I'm going to Lake Cuomo because maybe I'll never see it again. It'd be really interesting to see what that potential wage inflation and like a renewed uh, appreciation for essential workers, but also workers who work in customer service, what that's going to do to some of the social justice sentiments that obviously have been very strong during the pandemic and even before. Is it going to soften some of those spikes? Yeah. So there's short term and long term. I think in the short term, yes, it's it reduces some of the inequality, economic inequality that we have out there and gives that class of workers potentially more power to advocate for themselves and be a bigger part of the economy. Longer term, that's an issue. And I think um, as we as we think about the next the, the second half of the year being about hedonism, one of the other important parts of that second half of the year is that it's not just, I'm going to do this now because I haven't been able to do it for the last year, but it's also, I may not get to do it again. Meaning people will have in their minds, what's the next disruption? What's December going to give us? Oh, aliens planting monoliths in deserts. Great. Let's <laughs> check that one off. So there's going to be this feeling of uncertainty about how long this grace period of normalcy will last. Maybe we find out the vaccine only works once. Maybe we find out it mutates too much. Maybe there's an entirely different disaster that keeps us from doing the things we want to do. So people are going to be definitely be in a live for the day mentality for that second half of 2021. I think that one of the things that um, I haven't heard much about um, when, when people talk about hedonism and living for the day is the other way of thinking about what that might mean for some people. So there's obviously like, let's go on vacation, let's buy all the things, let's experience pleasure. But I think there's another angle to it, which is maybe you haven't had enough money to do nice things for people that you care about, your friends, or to invest in the arts or things that maybe are very important, but not necessarily the traditional associations that we have with what hedonism means. Altruistic hedonism is what you're talking about. I don't even know that I would call it altruistic. I think we've been sitting with our choices and uh, some mm -hmm. of the things that we've been missing uh, have been our people you know, being able to connect with them, having relationships, being able to share our lives. But there's also the things that give us pleasure, which are, you know, they vary from person to person. But some of those things are created by the, our immediate environment. And mm -hmm. those of us who have resources have been able to invest in the restaurants near us or some of the artists near us that we know are struggling. I wonder what happens once it looks like there's going to be a stretch of clear road, do we then double down on that and go, well, you know what, let's, let's bring these people back. Let's create the world that we really love that includes these pleasures that are not necessarily the obvious ones of being on vacation or, you know, consuming. Sure. Yeah. 
the way I've been looking at it is probably the first half of that second half of the year. So maybe July, August, September, it's, it's really very personally ideating. It's like, how, how do I myself blow off the last year and help myself with what I love and value? I do also think though, that once you get into the October, November, December, you get into more family experiences, which is, hey, last year we were not able to be together for Thanksgiving. We're gonna make an even greater effort to be together for Thanksgiving. We weren't able to be together for Christmas last year. We're gonna make an even greater effort to be together for Christmas and for other events. Weddings have been postponed and all mm-hmm. these other things. So things like destination weddings, destination Christmases, you know, hey, let's get all 12 of us who can afford it. We're, we're all going to London for Christmas or something, right? I do see that there's a kind of a personal ideation place in the first part, and then, and then it gravitates over to family later in the year. And I think you could extend that certainly to community as mm-hmm. well. I think it's a stretch first couple months for people to be super, super into, okay, let's recover our, our communities. Because I think each of us personally has to sort of do some self-care to get us to that point almost. And that self-care is going to manifest in, a, in, in pleasure seeking. Mm. Absolutely. So that's great for individuals, consumers. What do companies need to have in mind over the next you know, year, year and a half with these customer cycles? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if brands can speak directly to that hedonistic tendency to the pleasure seeking. Can they be overt about it or they, do they need to be careful and keep in mind that it's only going to last so long. Right. And only going to last so long is one of the interesting bits here. Typically in my job as a futurist, we deal in a longer term future where there's a significant amount of uncertainty, but there are some things that are sort of bedrock and will continue. Those are pretty certain. I think what's interesting about next year is we have a low amount of uncertainty, but a high degree of disruption, and it's a short period of time. So how do companies respond in these short windows? Because the once the party ends, there's a couple of different scenarios for how 2022 to 2025 and 2030 may go. Next year, 2021 is pretty locked in. We don't really need alternative scenarios. We know the course, but it's a short period of time. And, and you're not going to do super long-term innovation where you're planning on several years of building you know, large markets for your products and services in this time of disruption. So one of the things that's interesting is, yeah, how do you respond quickly in 2021 to what's happening, both in the ramp up and the, the vaccines where you're very much a community player, you're still supporting your employees and your, your stakeholders, and it's, it's really very much a pandemic situation, but slowly opening up. And then being able and ready to hit the go button in late June and July when things really start to explode. But then what's the prep for 2022 to 2025, which does have uncertainty? Will we have a K-shaped recovery where, again, only the wealthy continue to benefit from creating value in society and you have a large and desperate underclass? Or do we have a back to a recession like the Great Recession and it takes a few years for people conserving and saving and educating themselves to get back into a position where they feel comfortable? Or do we have this massive digital transformation where autonomy and AI and a circular sustainable society radically transforms how people shop and and act? So for a lot of businesses in, in 2020, you know, from restaurants to larger corporations, there's been some adaptation for their business model or what they offer to this new world of within the pandemic um, that they will 
still need to be running and, and launching into next year as the the world stops being a pandemic world, but a post-pandemic world, but a precursor, it sounds like, to some fairly disruptive years, 2022, 23, 24. Um, how, do, how do companies keep these new offerings going, relevant, evolving, along with these constant pushes for change? So I think a lot of the things that companies are doing to respond to the pandemic were things that were already in the longer term pipeline for what companies needed to do. The incredible efficiencies around retail, point of sale automation, um, outsourcing a point of sale, so that, uh, to do curbside, to be able to, to much more tightly knit your online and, and physical store inventories and POS systems together. Those are things that were already underway. I mean, Best Buy was surviving the war against Amazon by having this incredible hybrid physical plus digital experience. They were, you could order it online, you could check inventory in the stores, you, you could pay for it online, pick it up in the store. And they were winning because they were able to provide both an online and, and physical experience. So a lot of companies, were retailers especially, were already having to go that route. Yeah, and locally here in Texas, um, our, our large grocery chain, HEB, spent a lot of 2018, 2019 buying up digital firms, implementing a, a whole curbside operation alongside their, their standard grocery stores. So this is definitely happening, you know, from kind of the local all the way up to the national as far as the digital disruption or these customer preferences driving business model changes. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was holding that back from the company side, companies were doing these scenarios saying, this is how consumers are going to do this in the future before pre-pandemic, like this is how it was going to happen. But two things were holding it up. I mean, the speed to which companies would invest to make that change, but also consumer behavior. I mean, consumer behavior is tough to nudge, right? <laughs> if, you have a, if you have a way of doing something, you're going to keep doing it until there's a reason that forces you to change that behavior. And so like better value propositions around how and smoothing out how I check out and how I do things, it just wasn't bad enough before mm -hmm. them to radically change their habits, make them download an app, make them create an account, you know, tie a credit card to the account, pay attention to points and, and subscriptions and things like that. It, there wasn't enough movement on the consumer side, but the pandemic comes along, pushes the consumer into the future maybe five years into the future. So <laughs> radically increases adoption. Mm -hmm. So coming out of the pandemic, now you've got companies that have been investing for a number of years in, in anticipating this and consumers that have all of a sudden been pushed into the future uh, and they've adopted new behaviors. So the combination, I think, is, will continue. Well, there's that push this year because we have to get on digital platforms to stay connected at work, buy groceries, et cetera. There's a Kind of parallel to this um, on the social media end, if you think about the um, that documentary that was on Netflix, the, the social the, dilemma, the social dilemma, and then the yeah. um, this constant awareness of how that's psychologically bad, and then you go a step further about how it's bad that they have our data. So you have this parallel track of data awareness or or, or digital awareness that in a in a self protective way. So on one hand, you've been pushed into the future. You know, your credit cards on all these services, it's di digital is now completely instrumental to how you, you kind of run your life. But then you have to balance this awareness of, is this actually good for me? Post-pandemic, is there a scenario where this shakes out where people are like, man, I'm glad I used that for that nine months, but 
but forget that. I'm going to now go back to the way that it was. You know, do, do we do we backstep on the digital jump that we've had this year? I wonder if it's I, I don't I don't know if it's a backstep, but I do wonder if this similarly to how adoption has been accelerated. Naturally, the sort of user feedback is going to be accelerated as well. And yes, there's things like the social dilemma and the Center for Humane Technology that are starting to sort of ask these very important questions of what is our tech doing to us? Is that awareness for that builds more broadly? People are going to build that into their demands. When we're talking about exchange of value, it's not going to be just about, I give you my money and I get this product back. Is the product good or bad? I think it's going to be increasingly more of, okay, we have this interaction in the process of me getting the product from you, but also what does the interaction do for me? How does it make me feel? What are you getting out of it? How much are you learning about me? Am I comfortable with that? I think people are going to be increasingly more aware of that and sensitive mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, you're moving from discrete to f- discrete interactions to continuous interactions. Mm-hmm. And, and so that means all companies are going to have significantly more intimacy with their end consumers. And that intimacy is going to continue uh, and be ongoing. And so it will be a relationship in ways that maybe marketers only dreamed about, but be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I agree with those things. I think rather than sort of saying, hey, I'm going to give you feedback and I'm not, I'm going to protect my data or I'm going to regress. I think the better way to think about it is the market. It opens more opportunities for more companies to enter the market in different ways to be competitors, which is a good thing. We have a technopoly at the moment Mm -hmm. um, where a few companies are commanding enormous amounts of our attention, uh, our data and our money. This sort of retrenchment, I don't know about a retrenchment. I think the trains left the station. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take very long to form a new habit, but the digital train has left the station. I don't think there's a retrenchment. And also, we're going to see how it enables the experience economy next summer. All of the foundational groundwork that's been laid this year, when everybody does get back out there and start traveling again, the mysterious black box ways that the economy just suddenly works for you when you're traveling is going to be miraculous and entertaining and surprising to us about how effortless it's going to be to get back out there in the world. And, and I think most consumers are going to eagerly exchange their information to participate in that world. However, I think as, as Vessi said, people may be choosy about what, what level and in what way. And I think that opens the space for new companies to have alternatives. Vessi, like you talked about the, the new search engine that's, mm-hmm. that's being started up by an ex-Salesforce guy that, that is more private and is more centered on, on a single person. There are other search engines and and other ways to conceal your browsing history that maybe consume more. But when you do that, you then potentially opt out of these miraculous black box magical services that just arrive. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to call it the magic society, right? Because you, <laughs> there's, almost, there's an algorithm that's just Vessi's algorithm. It used to be that Vessi, you would be aggregated into a specific subset of a persona type of a certain number of people and you would say, you know, there's 30,000 Vessies in the United States, and this is how we're going to do that. There's an algorithm for you now, just you, and it's going to anticipate, know exactly what you're going to do, and it's going to be and want, and it's going to be connected to a whole fulfillment engine to market, uh, accept payment, deliver, and then recirculate that entire experience. Well, there's also the, you have to offset that sort of ability of, of that algorithm to put you in a marketing and purchasing cycle 
that there needs to be a human element to how that all comes off. Is it a dopamine driven cycle where you will definitely buy, you know, a bottle of lotion? Yeah, probably. But how hollow does, is that over time? And then you, you, you will require more of your magic box, I think. I think it becomes more complex. You could argue that we've already experienced something of a catastrophe with the way that social media has affected our elections. I think the difference is that I don't know how many people truly understand and believe the impact that that has had. I do think that things are going to evolve in the direction of consumers of technology having more intelligent demands of that technology and having more self-awareness of how they're being impacted by that technology. And I think that's how a technology evolves, right? Like you, we're still, this is, we're so, uh, this is so brand new that we're only just now going like, wait a minute, there's, this is having effects that we didn't anticipate and only a certain subset of people can even really fully understand what those effects are. So it's going to take time for consumers to get smart enough to make demands of the technology. Well, that's I think. an important point you just said. Only a small subset of people are aware of that. Probably only a small subset of people would care enough to not be involved in that dopamine loop. Like, you know, a good grouping of citizens are probably fine with their consumer cycle. Absolutely. And so what is the what will the balance be of people that are mindfully consuming digital technologies or digital experiences versus the people that are sort of in the trough um, being fed whatever through algorithm. I think it, it comes down to values then to some degree. I think what you just described is a uh, set of consumers that are going to maybe find the idea of a technology-free vacation very appealing. So there's you know different sort of things that matter to you at that point. Do you want your life to be incredibly convenient and for your needs to be anticipated before you even know you have them? Or do you want to feel like you've got agency and your life is going to be a little bit harder, but maybe you enjoy that. Maybe that's part of the deal. Like there's people who climb mountains at risk through their life. And that's something that they actually intentionally do for enjoyment. And then there's those who don't. And I do think that that's one, one more way that we're going to have to think about how we speak to consumers. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be on or off, right? The guy that right. climbed the mountain uses Delta mobile app to check in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to yeah, take within the reason. To mountain. <laughs> If you look at historically at how new communication technologies filter into populations, you definitely see an era like we have now in the past. Hitler gave away radios and he did that because he could get his speeches into the masses and change opinion. And it was a very powerful technology. We got more savvy as a society about radio. We got more savvy as a society about TV. We will get more savvy about social media, which you know is incredibly more intimate and is much more of a sniper than an atom bomb in terms mm-hmm. of how it, how it interacts. So I, I do have hope that we will get more ability to have some self-awareness around what the technology is doing and, and be more intelligent consumers of that. And we'll pick and choose when and how we, we do that. But overall, a lot of us are going to be taking advantage of this sort of digital background. And so from a company perspective, there is a question of like, how do I help my consumers on that journey? A parallel would be the large increase in obesity in the United States, you know, a decade ago, and the need for food and beverage companies to respond by cutting fats and sugar. It costs money to put sugar in things. So if companies don't have to put sugar in things, they won't but they put sugar in things because more people buy it. And so there was this legitimate debate with the large food and beverage companies. Can we, as a group, figure out how to start 
easing people off of salt and sugar <laughs> without saying it's low fat or low sugar, just in our regular formulas, taking more of it out. And it was incredibly tough because consumers migrated away to other brands that were still putting fat and sugar in things. And so as an industry, they had this challenging question of, we want to be in our consumers' lives, but we don't want to kill them. How do we as, a, as an industry respond responsibly? And it's not clear that they have. I think they're doing better. I mean, if you look at PepsiCo and what Indra Nui did in terms of turning her whole company towards health and wellness, it was to reposition those high salt, high fat snacks as indulgent occasions, and then moving more into health and wellness around here's your daily calories. So you have these ongoing daily calories that you're going to get from us like you used to get, but those other things are still going to, are going to be indulgences. You influence interaction with your products more than you try to educate your consumers. The last four years have proven that people don't want to be told things are a certain way, don't really want to be led with education. They want to be led with guidance or... or in more know, subtle ways. In more subtle ways and, and uh, influenced. And so I think it's up to companies to do that in a positive way. I think they'll try. And I think new services will pop up that will enable them to try. You know, it's interesting when Google went public, what was their... What did they don't say? Don't be evil. Yeah, don't be evil. And now look at them. I mean, a lot of people would consider what they're doing pretty evil. In their minds, they are providing digital in information in a way that enables people to find their joy, right? And that requires potentially spreading that beyond the walls that they should. The, the consequences though have been poor, even if the intention was good. Mm -hmm. And that means, again, other companies can spring up into those spaces and have a more enlightened approach to information. Questions will continue to be around, how do you do that in a way that helps consumers manage and also give them all of the same conveniences and efficiencies that sharing data indiscriminately does. I think part of the problem is right there in the simplicity of that uh, mission statement, don't be evil. It's completely subjective, not nuanced enough. How do you expand on that in a way that, that actually will be informative for your people and leadership to follow something that is not evil in a unified way, right? So that's building mission and values and messaging around something that's more thoughtful and nuanced. Absolutely. I think I think it's finding ways to spread that understanding that I'm sure existed when the founders first coined that phrase. I think they were clear on what it meant. But as their organization grows, it has a responsibility to extend those values in an actionable way to those who make up that organization. We're finding ourselves in a really strange and uncomfortable space, or rather the makers of technologies are finding themselves in an uncomfortable space where <laughs> they have to actually think about whether it's really their responsibility to protect people. I mean, I would compare them to almost like this the cigarette companies, except that you didn't need to use cigarettes. So I don't even know what the correct... Well, once you started smoking, you needed cigarettes because they were <laughs> addictive. And social media is just as addictive. So at that point, is it questioning uh, some of these core tenets of capitalism? If if I'm selling you a product and you want the product and the product happens to kill you, what's the problem? To what, yeah. what degree does a brand and a maker of a technology have the responsibility not only to make sure that their technology isn't obviously going to harm you, but that that technology isn't going to harm society in the long run, even when that's kind of unknowable? I mean, I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook with the intention of someday disrupting democracy, but that is what happened. There's this switch from me to we that may happen. Mm -hmm. Because there has to be, because there are new threats that are evolving that are going to require community action. Mm -hmm. Pandemic being a perfect example. You could argue that people in China right now have more personal freedom than in the United States, because in the spring they didn't. As a community, as a we, 
They all clamped down. They all used masks. They suffered eight weeks of hell all together. And now they're able to go out to concerts and to sporting events and to shop and to restaurants free of this virus. So that is an example of a community response versus an individual response. That gets me to Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg firmly believes that information should be free. And if everybody is sharing everything, nobody will have a problem. To him, that's not evil. That's good. To, yeah. to others, that sounds profoundly evil. So I do think there, you're right in that there is, you know, who's deciding what's good and what's not. But moving forward, I don't see a way around the fact that American society is going to be pushed towards more community level independence versus personal mm -hmm. independence. And that people are going to have to start identifying with their whole community rather than just themselves or, or even mm -hmm. inside themselves. And, and so how, how do companies then go along with that flow? You know, you've got the classic 19, late 1960s, early 1970s Coke commercial. I'd like to buy the world of Coke, right? Mm -hmm. So you had Coca-Cola being very much about that, whereas you had the Pepsi brand being very individual. For post-pandemic, instead of thinking of the 1920s, I've been thinking about the 1970s because the 70s was another time of coming out of a war and moving into a space of hedonism, breaking away from conventional norms and embrace, you know, the late 60s were about breaking things, right? And, and you can certainly say the pandemic is about breaking things, breaking things down the ways we used to do things, questioning why we did some things. The 70s was another time of inclusion, and it will be interesting to see how the post-pandemic recovery and experience economy echoes maybe the 70s and the sexual revolution versus the 20s. Well, there was living with um, economic and resource constraints as well, right? There was a series of years where fuel was uh, scarce. And so you had all of this going on that you're talking about on the positive end, but, you know, alongside probably pretty, pretty big constraints for a lot of folks. So that, that definitely sounds appropriate for what we're headed into. When that uh, the hedonism was almost driven by a rebellion against what otherwise would have been kind of a depressing time <laughs> in interesting ways, claiming the pleasures where you can get them. Yeah. And I, so what, what's interesting, though, is generationally how that's different. This time around, it's millennials who are older. They're farther along in the life cycle. Mm -hmm. So the millennials are the big cohort now. That's where family formation is happening. It's where all the spending is happening. And yet over the last 12 years, they've had a series of 15 years, significant setbacks with the Great Recession. And they were just getting back to sort of income parity with previous generations. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And so now you've got millennials, lowest birth rate. And what is also interesting is you've got a small generation coming after them in the, what I would call digital natives, the Gen Zs, who are small, but remarkably influential. They own social media. Millennials don't own social media. Gen Zs run social media. The number one TikTok personality who makes the most money on TikTok is I think a 16 or 17 year old girl in New Jersey. <laughs> so it's a really interesting time to market to millennials when they are being economically challenged. They're being socially challenged because as much as millennials like to talk about equity and all those other things, it's the Gen Zs that are driving all of that. And especially through mm -hmm. social media, they're finding themselves in a situation with less agency than you would thought. So if you're a brand and, and you're looking at millennials, it's, it's all about how do we get them to believe they have agency, mm. to believe that, that they have leadership, to believe that they have the ability to spend their time, money and effort in ways that create value for themselves and their communities around them? I think that what millennials have experienced because of the multiple cycles of hardships that they've gone through and especially during the pandemic, I think there's an eroded belief in the sort of individual success, like you can make it because you could just work really hard and more of an awareness of how 
important it is to have relationships and to have community around you. So I think brands need to reflect that back to them. I, I think that that's going to stick regardless of which one of those two scenarios comes to bear, because I don't think you lose that lesson once you've lived through what millennials have lived through. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So do you have a return to the, the tyranny of the suburbs, right? When I lived in California, we lived in a planned community that had a very strong neighborhood covenant. <laughs> we got a knock on the door one day and it was sort of the community rep who said, hey, you've got a patch of dead grass in your front yard. You've got to take care of that. My neighbor painted the front door a non-community color. They had to repaint the door. <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's not a question of conformity. I, I don't want to say that. I'm just saying that the power will reside in these communities. And will it be dictatorial or will it be open? I don't know. But some values are going to percolate out of a potential return to suburbia. And values are going to percolate out of that that are going to be very interesting. I think they're going to be more inclusive. And I think they're going to be aggressively inclusive. Yes, that's but, a good word for it. Aggressively inclusive. And norming as a result. Mm -hmm. it, will, it, will, it will be a norming thing and, and there will be pressure to fit the norms, whatever those new norms are. They're not going to be the 1950s norms. They're going to be very different. And yet there might be a tyranny in that as well. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a very interesting balance. I think a lot of people will embrace that. They'll say, hey, we're part of the community. We're going to have to put more of who we are into the community and we're going to have to kind of get along. And that raises this new specter of politics. Remember, for a long time, politics didn't seem to matter. We now know politics really matters. So I do see an increase in politics, an increase in, in community level engagement. It's going to be really interesting. The driver before was developers and a marketing machine pushing, move out to the suburbs, look at how clean they are, look at how formulaic they are, and you know, don't you want to park your car in, in, in your driveway? And it, it's a different push now. It's an affordability push now. It's a, it's a deep need and longing for community now. And so I think the, what results out of neighborhoods over the next five to 10 years is going to be a different animal than it was in the 50s and 60s um, and the 80s. It, it's, and space. And space and, and agency. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a suburb, I have the space to have my own office. Actually, I have the space to have two offices for me and my spouse and a space for my kid to go potentially go to school. Who knows when they have to go back to all online again, right? So the pandemic has challenged this idea of where people were living in urban cores. They said we can outsource some of those things that we need to survive to the community. We don't need to have a gym in our house or a space for recreation in the yard because we can go to a gym, we can have a gym membership, or we can go to a park, right? The pandemic put all that into mm -hmm. reverse, right? All of a sudden, I myself had to make sure that, that I had within my personal control, the ability to do all the things that I need to do. And so moving out to the suburbs is going to be about community, but it's also going to be about agency. Moving to the suburbs increases my own personal agency when times are crazy. That's very interesting because what was driving urbanization before the pandemic was access to efficiency. It was about mm -hmm. access. So I don't need to own a car. I can order an Uber. I, I don't need a big kitchen because I can get takeout. <laughs> I don't need social spaces because I can go to them in other parts of the city. And when that got taken away, now all of a sudden people realize they need to have a backup and they need to have their own access to things. It's almost a reconfiguration of what you choose to, to what you choose to source from your community. Whereas when we're in the focus on the urban lifestyle, it was literally things like a car or a kitchen or whatever the case may be. But the suburbs you're sourcing from your community could be childcare. If school goes online, you know that if you like your neighbor, you guys can share that responsibility and your life is going to be a lot better. So there's certain things that are more relationship oriented 
and yeah. still location oriented and less like things to share. Yeah, in urban environments, you were outsourcing stuff and you were keeping your relationships and community. And the mm-hmm. next thing, you're insourcing your stuff and you're outsourcing your community. That's an interesting dichotomy. And again, something that, that companies can play with in terms of how they have relationships with their consumers. So it's clear from everything we've talked about, it's been pretty broad. I think we started with hedonism, went into digital evolution, and now we're talking about the evolution to the suburbs. Um, All of this means that the consumers that companies will be speaking to over the next two, three, five years, the market looks drastically different. So it's not like it's adaptability to that market and awareness of of how you're speaking to them, how you're aligning to your values to make sure that you're evolving alongside your consumers. I think your ecosystem is, is incredibly critical. So it's not just that you as a company yourself are paying attention to your consumer's values and ensuring that you're creating and delivering value to them in ways that they want. Increasingly, you're going to be part of an ecosystem and a network to do that. Your entire value chain touching that consumer is going to be transparent and it's going to be equally important that there are shared values across that ecosystem. I would say you need a very robust human-centric design function to continuously think about how that ecosystem is organized and to ensure that it's serving your customer, perhaps to also consider and weigh how it's benefiting the customer, not just in the obvious exchange of goods and, and, and services, but also are there is there like a psychological component that you now need to take into consideration as a brand? And as your company is evolving through these new services and, and the new consumer base and, and these new digital technologies, making sure that you have a sound foundation and your values um, that are specific and actionable um, so that you're growing in a way that uh, is sustainable uh, and brings your people along and, and keeps everybody uh, moving along to the same, the same beat. Yeah, you can't just say don't be evil. You need to make a plan about how not to be evil. I'm Steve Hurst. And I'm Vessie Ivanova and we're with Found Brand Agency. We build brands that last, uncover true identities, and work with people to launch successful products and ideas. I'm Christian Cruz, I'm principal of Wavepoint. We enable companies to think ahead and act in uncertainty. You've been listening to Wavepoint Found, the podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change. Our show is produced by Found Brand Agency, with engineering and production assistance by Stuart Leach, and original score by Richard Carpenter. You can find past episodes and subscribe for future episodes by visiting anchor.fm slash waypointfound. Thanks for listening.